This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 87. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. All right, Susie Madge, you're on. Tell me, who are you, Susie? Hi there. So I'm Susie Madge. I'm a ski mountaineer and consultant psychologist. So I consult with individuals or groups, organizations around performance, well-being, stress. But my big, big love and fascination is risk and uh, what I call positive risk, which really is the sort of psychological benefits of risk taking and also how to take risks well. Cool. So just for people who are listening, um, Susie actually did the psychology program with me. So we're both mapsters. And Susie's actually the person that I probably bragged about the most. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> I'll just be like, when people are like, oh, we're like all these cuddly, like weird hugging people. I'm like, yeah, we hug a lot. Um, fair enough. But we have like, you know, we have this person who jumps out of like planes and helicopters and skis down mountains nobody's ever skied down and they're like whoa <laughs> so yeah i do that sometimes just so that you know great good okay well <laughs> so Susie, let's start out with um what relationship do you feel and obviously we can only just talk about the west we can only talk about where we come from and what we know about but what kind of relationship do you feel society in general has with risk nowadays Okay, so that's a really great question, because a lot of sociologists think that what government tries to do at the moment with a lot of laws and a lot of sort of societal mores, so societal given behaviours, is they try to reduce risk. Um, But at the same time, and in quite a complex way, we also do tend to celebrate risk takers So somebody like adventurers or astronauts, we do celebrate them when they're doing well. And then if something goes wrong and they have an accident or they die, then suddenly it was too risky or it was sort of over risky or the risk wasn't calculated correctly enough. So um, my feeling before going into researching risk, which I did on the MAP course uh, that we did together, was that risk, I actually sort of perceive risk to be a relatively neutral word, whereas society can um, kind of valence it quite negatively. So if someone says to you, oh, that's a bit risky, that's automatically quite negative. Whereas I actually just think a risk is a risk. And then we calculate the sort of cost benefit uh outcome of the risk that we take but you know taking a risk can lead to something really positive or it can lead to something really negative so uh, a very common definition for risk which i started looking into when i was doing the research was a, a behavior that can become that sorry a behavior that can result in a an outcome involving um loss particularly like even death but actually a, a truer definition would be a behavior which can result in an outcome of loss or gain. So what I was really interested in in looking at was the sort of the, if you like, holistic risk. So what leads to risk, which leads to kind of poor outcomes and what leads to risk, which leads to good outcomes. And also when a risk leads to either a poor outcome or a good outcome, what effect does that have on us psychologically? So that's why there are definite psychological benefits of taking risks for some people but we do appear to be a lot of us are quite risk averse which does appear to be fairly encouraged by the legal system and uh, government and societal uh, values and mores does that answer your question yes absolutely absolutely great so how do you think that your own you know adventures so to speak have prepared you or change the way that you think about risk okay so that's a it's a really great question so for me personally the reason why I was initially interested in it's quite an under-researched topic in psychology and psychologists always love to research something that no one else has researched right um it's fairly researched in sociology and philosophy but weirdly not psychology 
And then also when it's researched in psychology, it's quite often researched in a lab setting. So people will complete a scale one to seven. How risky do you think that was? How unrescued do you think that was? And I just thought I'm not exactly sure that people are really going to be recreating the kind of the experiences in their mind or their body that they went through three days later when they're in a laboratory. So I was really interested in getting as close to the heart of the risk taking as possible in my research. That's why I did... Um, interviews whilst I was ski mountaineering with my interviewee. So really get as close to the risk-taking as I could. Um, the other thing is pre some previous research, uh, admittedly from a while ago, did slightly gender, gender stereotype or it did gender risk. So there was, there was this notion still around a bit today that males are more risk-taking than females. As you can probably hear, I am a female. And yet, by other people, I'm perceived to be quite a risk-taker. So I was interested in, in investigating that. Um, and also, ski mountaineering is quite a new sport, which um, hadn't ever been researched by any psychologist before. So obviously, skiing has and mountaineering has, but not ski mountaineering, which is a sort of a, a dangerous combination of both skiing and mountaineering, if you like. Um, so there's a lot going on with that. And also, um, I, while ski mountaineering, I've been to some inevitable places like the Himalayas and Alaska, but also I've ski mountaineered in Afghanistan twice. And it, it was really interesting because people had real different perceptions of what the risk was going to be. So people back at home, when I said I'm going ski mountaineering in Afghanistan, obviously all thought that I was going to get captured by the Taliban, chopped up into little bits and boiled in a pot. Um, <laughs> When, um, when, when, when we got out there, I went with another woman. Um, for us, probably the, the, possibly the biggest risk was actually, are we going to make it into Afghanistan? Are we going to get over the border? Because somewhat extraordinarily, the woman decided, who I was with decided to get her camera out at the border crossing, um, which is always a, a, a triumph, a triumphant behaviour when you're trying to, to cross a border anywhere in the world. But certainly between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, I wouldn't recommend that. And we almost didn't get into the country. That was our biggest risk. And then when we were there, the locals, when they saw us, they just thought that we were going to kill ourselves on our skis because they'd never seen Westerners before. They'd certainly never seen Western women before, but they'd certainly never seen skis before. So... The, the perception of risk was completely different depending on with whom one spoke about Afghanistan. And that really struck me that actually perception of risk is it really informs people how, how they perceive a risk. But it's only true to them. You know, it's very, very subjective. So there's this sort of cluster. There's a mosaic of reasons, if you like, for why I, I was interested in, in investigating um, risk. Firstly, it was understudied in psychology. Secondly, scheme mountaineering hadn't been studied. It's quite a new sport, but there's loads of people doing it. And thirdly, my own personal experiences being a woman and also skiing in some kind of far out places like Afghanistan. Right. So let's uh, can we stick a little bit with the risk perception? And I also want to point out here, this is not just, you know, it's I think it's easy if you're a listener and you're like, oh, my God, you know, this woman, she does crazy things. But um, I can tell you from someone who's definitely not a risk taker like Susie's, but I, I travel as the listeners know. And it's just, I remember when I started traveling in 2005, I actually tried to publish an article in a traveling magazine and they rejected it because the outlook was too fearful. And now I'm actually really glad that that happened because otherwise it would be easy for me to forget how much I've changed. And now when I travel, I'm, I'm usually very relaxed and I can be in places which other people perceive as dangerous. And I think there's so much to it if you actually do what you're talking about, because the people who find it the most risky are usually the ones who never do anything. It sounds horrible, but it's true. What do you think about that? Does that map onto what you found? Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's several things I could pick up there. So first of all, if you think... I've already talked a bit about how sociologists, for example, really perceive that government um, encourages us not to take too many risks. So encourages us to be to re risk averse. But if you go back and if you think about social anthropology or human biology, when we were kind of hunters and gatherers, and we had to have some risk takers in our groups, otherwise we wouldn't have had the person who was prepared to get close enough to the woolly mammoth to kill it so that we could eat it or we had to have someone who just wanted to keep on looking around the corner to see if there was any better sort of place to live so 
there, there is an understanding with human biologists that there are there were always a few people within a group who appeared to have a higher risk tolerance or were more prepared to take risks. Um, and nowadays, they do think that there's probably a kind of a cluster of genes which interact. So that probably roughly about 10% of us seem or of humans seem to sort of tolerate risk better or be slightly more attracted to risk. But you can understand that in a way. Otherwise, you know, you, you're going to have a particular relationship, psychological relationship with risk if you're a firefighter, for example, or if you're an astronaut um, or if you're a mountain guide, you're probably going to be less risk averse to other people or even a violent criminal. They're going to be less risk averse than other people. So we don't appear to all tolerate the same level of risk. So some of us do appear to take a few more risks and some of us uh, a few fewer. But that's possibly also one one strong thing which came out in, in my research was um, I did my research in a place called the Chamonix Valley in France where there are there do appear to be quite a high takers, ski mountaineers, there's a lot of wing zooters, um, etc. Um, and um, there does seem to be a sort of a culture of risk. One of my interviewees called it the, the most dangerous valley in the world. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but there's this culture of risk in Chamonix that does appear to inform people's attitude and perception of risk and also their decision making uh, around risk. But this appears to be a, a level below the level of awareness. So people accept more risk, but that's because within the sort of um, loss gain uh, balance, if you like, they know that the gain of, of accepting the risk or approaching the risk is going to be bigger because people really do get an, an extraordinary psychological response to coming very, very close to the edge. So taking risks, taking a big risk and then surviving you know it's there's a, there's a lot of edge work around injury loss death um in in these kind of extreme adventure sports like base jumping and people definitely do get something out of that but that's not to say that that's that's the only thing so people who would be more risk averse still looking towards what for them is a high risk they do appear to get something out of it. And it's not just this sort of adrenaline junkie, testosterone type reaction that we read about in the press. There's a real long-term sort of enduring effect of transcendence that can last for weeks and months for people when they do something which is out of their comfort zone um, and then they do it and they achieve it. it. It's a very, very enduring effect of achievement, but also this, this notion of transcendence. And when I say transcendence, what I'm talking about really, if say we're talking about skiing, when, when you're experiencing transcendence, you almost feel like your skis and your body and the snow underneath your skis has all become one. Um, so you don't really perceive the barriers anymore, but also you're just transcending the normal day-to-day -day grind of life you know the drudgery of of your day-to-day -day chores so there's this notion of getting beyond yourself and that really does seem to be particularly sparked by um existing around risk or approaching risk um one thing i would say that a lot of risk-taking people do appear to do is they appear to have their own particular language so for example a climber instead of saying something is incredibly steep or I'm on a ledge and there's nothing beneath me, they'll say, oh, it's airy. Um, <laughs> if, if it's a risk that people think that it, it's an acceptable risk or, a, or an achievable risk, but they think it's going to be an extremely difficult one, then they won't say it's risky. They might say it's challenging or oh, it's a bit dicey or, um, you know, there's lots and lots of interesting language around that, which is it's very, very euphemistic if you like. Um, so that's one of the sort of cultural things that comes in is this slight sort of creativity within the language. Um, and then there's this sort of culture of risk. Now, I do quite a lot of work with um, the police force, and this is something that they're very, very interested in, this notion of culture of risk, because different parts of the police force appear to have different cultures of risk. So, for example, a firearms in Britain, a firearms um, unit will have a different culture of risk to... Um, another unit. Um, and so what I tend to do is I kind of help them to 
really um, recognize what their culture of risk is because because it's kind of it appears to be not quite on the level of consciousness it's a little bit below it takes a while to discover what it is and then we need to find out really what they think would be the ideal culture of risk because what the culture of risk is and what, and what the ideal one is going to be is probably going to be different so this this notion of culture of risk is something that actually no one else had ever really written about before it's something that really came through in the research that i did but that's really appears to be being taken on by people so yeah Oh, that there, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. So you talked about um, a few minutes ago about the benefits. So you talked about them chasing transcendence. Um, yeah. Could we maybe complete other benefits that people get out of taking risks? Hmm. Yes. Okay. So I don't know whether anyone on your um, podcast has ever spoken about self-efficacy before. This sort of notion that I can do that. Has anyone spoken about that? I not? have, I have. But, okay, but brilliant. go for okay. it. I mean, not everybody has listened to 84 episodes, so go for it. You know. <laughs> Shame on them if they haven't. Okay, so self-efficacy is, is sort of really the notion that um, you can do something. It's really like just uh, someone saying to you, oh, you know, you're going to be able to climb that mountain. You just think to yourself, yeah, I can do that. That would show that you have a relatively high... Um, level of self-efficacy it's not it's not a global or a universal it's not like self-esteem where it's just you go around thinking yeah I'm great it's much more specific to certain areas of your life Um, but self-efficacy is one of those um, kind of traits that does appear to be fairly related to quite high well-being actually Um, so so people who sort of take these kind of these sorts of risks, not just mountaineering or ski mountaineering, but in general, do do tend to be fairly high in self-efficacy, this notion that, that they can do something, a specific thing. And so that can tend towards making them pretty content as a person. Um, other benefits would be, as I, as I mentioned, transcendence. There's another thing I want to mention, which is similar to transcendence, but it's almost beyond transcendence. And this is the notion of the sublime. Now, this is really relevant to risk taking because you know when you're feeling high arousal so you're you when you're very very rise physiologically you can tip over into anxiety but you can tip over into excitement and that's really where the sublime fits in it's this sort of fear but anticipation it's joy but sadness it's so it's two contrasting emotional experiences that you experience at exactly the same time and being surrounded by risk does really appear to encourage encourage this feeling of the sublime within people. And when you feel that sublime, that is a, a very, very potent experience to have. So that, for example, would be an experience that you have at the time. But this notion that it can really help to kind of endure, this is really something to do with building your self-efficacy. So if you are going to do something you just think I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm not sure and then you kind of do it and you take the plunge Um, and then afterwards that's going to help build your self-efficacy your belief in yourself um, you know achievement in general which as I'm sure someone who you've um, interviewed has mentioned is kind of one of the five one two three four five yeah five elements of um, Seligman's Perma Um, there is also quite a lot of positive emotion there is actually a joy um in the doing and in the having done, in the achievement. But probably the number one key thing I think would be really great to mention at the moment would be the heightened awareness. Um, I don't know whether you've had anyone on it on your thing talking about flow, Chitset Mahai's flow, which, which is essentially when you're totally in the zone, you're not t- thinking about anything else, time passes you by, you've got this sort of magnetic awareness about everything around you. You, you feel like... Um, you, you really feel like you're doing something that you were put on this earth to do. So people do experience a, a very high level, a kind of a deep level of flow. And it's this real heightened awareness. And the thing is about the heightened awareness is it sort of acts like a virtuous circle. You need to have this heightened awareness in order to be right on the top of your game to not fall and die, basically, if you're talking about ski mountaineering. But equally, people love being in this state of heightened awareness. So they love being in that state and they have to be in that state so that a mistake isn't made. And you're, you're, in, a, you're in a situation where everything is 
it's happening too quickly for you to be cognitively thinking about it. It's all sort of rolled into this one ball of, of being, of, of sort of the I am, but you don't even have time to think about that. So it's an incredibly toxicating state to be in at the time where your awareness is go, focusing in on what you're doing and then it's focusing out and you're looking up. Is there a crevasse? Is there a boulder? Is, is there going to be an avalanche below? Are there going to be any rocks? Is, any, you know, is anyone coming in from my left or, or my right? It's very, very all-encompassing. And of course, there's nothing else going on in your brain. All your brain has space to think about is living. It's this extreme living, which you, could, you can taste it. It's so sort of there and 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 it's such a physical thing as well as this really real mental thing of this heightened awareness so that as well (laughs) you you make it sound awesome (laughs) definitely it's like yes let's go up that mountain (laughs) exactly um what i do wonder and that's also um for very selfish reasons because for for whatever reason i i remember even as a kid I, i i've never don't really think i've been too attracted to to doing like things which are at least physically risky Mm. um and i wonder if all the the a lot of the ecstasy and a lot of the cool things you talked about if that is you know if there's like a little bit of you know the fear of death that's kind of rolled into that that makes everything more exciting because for example flow i experience flow all the time when i'm you know when i'm working on this podcast on this very podcast i experience flow um, I, I have transcendent experiences in nature, which are, of course, way more toned down than when you are, you know, rocking Uzbekistan, which you will in a few weeks. <laughs> uh, so, so, so I do wonder, do, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, what, a, what part of that is the inherent riskiness or physical riskiness? And, you know, like, can you disentangle that a bit or do we just don't, not know? Okay, it's a great question because the classic psychological theory about death is something called terror management theory which is essentially that we're all terrified of death as in hence terror management theory and anything that we associate with death so blood feces etc so the notion is that we'll do anything that we can within our power to avoid death um however um the wonderful paul wong who someone may have mentioned already has sort of come up with a slight counter theory and he's called it meaning management theory. And, and he is the one, the, the kind of big psychologist, if you'd like, who's recognised that in being close to death, having near-death experiences, people make meaning out of it and then they almost realise that they need to and why they would want to start getting more out of life. So living a, a life fully, if you like. So if you think about existential um, philosophers or, or, or even psychologists, there's this sort of notion that being close to death, you actually are living life. You're living more life or you're living a deeper life, something like that. So I think some of that is wound into it. However, I will add that with some adventure athletes, it does get to a stage where whether you live or die doesn't matter as much anymore. I, I will say that. So, and for example, I have experienced that once. I was um, ski mountaineering a very high mountain, and obviously your thoughts are quite scrambled at altitude. It was over eight thousand meters, um, and everything is very, very slow. But the importance of living, it just didn't seem as important anymore. And in, in living, it appeared to be less attractive than just having a little sit down on the snow. But because I'd already mentally prepared for that. And I knew that I couldn't sit down in the snow. I kept on my feet. Um, But that's a funny place to be, isn't it, in your life, if the the thread between life and death is sitting down or not sitting down. And that's kind of what it can be like. So the thread is very, 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 very narrow. And and what what a lot of adventure athletes are really doing, who are doing these sports, is they're going that they, they accept that there are controlled risks and that's what they calculate the risk on, okay? So they, they calculate the cost-benefit um, ratio, i.e., you know, the, the, the 
how the risk sort of goes against against the benefits it's going to bring. They calculate that on all of the known things that they can control. So the environment, the weather, blah, 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 blah. But they accept that there will be possible um, unforeseen risks that they have not been able to calculate. And that is the key for the, for the adventure athletes is being able to survive the unknown risks which come in when when they're in the middle of the thing that they're doing so that is the key they calculate risks on the known risks and then they accept that there are going to be unknown risks unforeseen risks and that's that's what makes them that's what makes the experience and that's what makes them live or die for sure but that's what gives the extra frisson to the experience that appears to be pretty clear in the research that i did Okay, yeah. Yeah, I can I, I can see that. So the the real excitement co- comes from kind of will I be well, you know that you are able to perform certain uh tasks or things under certain conditions, but then you also mm-hmm. want to kind of figure out your um your limits and see like well, will I be able to cope with the unknown, so to speak. Yes. Is that that's what you're saying. All right, cool. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, precisely. Put, put in a much simpler way than I just explained, by the way. Well done. <laughs> I yeah, this this just makes me think. You know, I, you know, there's something that I think about sometimes. Um, the fact that I don't miss something like bungee jumping. All right, it's something that I that I wondered. You know, is it just that you know you want to do it, but you're just so afraid that you kind of trick yourself into believing that you don't want to do it, or Is it that the things, you know, like you mentioned quite a while before that people think more about meaning and stuff because I do that all the time anyway. And I I find some of the experiences, definitely not all, um, definitely not the same exhilaration as often, I would say. But I have experienced those states in very different circumstances that maybe for that reason, you know, I'm just not that drawn to that you know and 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 that's simply because yeah that there are some things that i get in a very different way and then the others where i'm like yeah maybe i'm too cowardly i don't know yeah maybe that's that's mm. what what it is about i don't know yeah and i mean the other thing about something like bungee jumping for example i've never been bungee jumping it just doesn't appeal to me at all but if you if you think of it in terms of chitsemahai's flow so to to reach a very very deep level of flow You need high skill. You need high skill and a high challenge. Well, how high is the skill in bungee jumping? Mm, I'm guessing good point. there's zero. Right. Um, so, so for these types of adventure athletes, there's there's that. There's no high, there's no high skill. They, they haven't worked for it. Um, and also, they would feel that there was very very little control a lot of these adventure athletes are complete and utter control freaks okay everything is is controlled to the nth degree every single little thing so um something like bungee jumping you're just not in control are you so so i would say something like bungee jumping that that would be that would be two things um that that could explain that Oh, that's a yeah. that, very interesting point. Now, of all the things that you do did mention, you you talked at the beginning that it's also a little bit gendered, but I did feel like the things that you mentioned are traditionally, you know, male qualities, right? Yeah, like you take the plunge and you 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 calculate it, which is again the analytical part, right? And then you you mm. risk it and all that. I mean, it can almost sound a little bit macho, at least to me. Do you feel that compassion, you know, some like these these like softer, more apparently feminine qualities have a place in all of this? And if yes, what kind of place? That's a really interesting question. Um, so I, 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 I struggle a little bit with the kind of gender stereotyping qualities first, first off. Um, but secondly, um, This isn't really related to your to, to your question. We're going to tell you anyway. One of the, one of the females that I interviewed basically said that she actually found um, ski mountaining a very very sensual experience, mm-hmm. um, which I suppose you you could argue might be more of a, a female 
having said that, one of the blokes said, uh, you know, um, there's nothing better than ski mountaineering. He said, maybe sex. And then he said, no, not even. Um, so there is this sensual notion to it. But the, the funny thing is about ski mountaineering, even more, slightly less other mountaineering, but anyway, is that you're sort of individuals within a group. So you're sort of working as a team most of the time. Most of the time you are with other people. And actually that shared experience and that shared flow can make the experience of it even more incredible. I mean, they've, there's been a tiny bit of research about group flow with volleyball players, actually. And they, it doesn't necessarily, from the research that they've done, it doesn't necessarily seem that people get into more flow if they're in a, if they're in a team or if they're in a group. But the flow which the individuals within the group experience appears to be even more um, deeply felt, if you like. That's a slight sidetrack. But uh, people who... I didn't go into the gender issue at all, but from my personal experience, um, ski mountaineering quite a lot of the time with as the only female amongst a load of blokes. If anything, I think having a female amongst a group of males slightly calms everything down. Okay. So there's a there's a there's a slightly calmer kind of thing going on because it's one less massive big old you know, load of testosterone going in. And um, <laughs> so I think maybe a calming, maybe a calming effect. One thing which does appear to, for, for some people does appear to alter stuff is there seems to be a kind of a, a difference in your, how much you want to take risks as you go through life. So there's almost, it's almost like a life cycle of risk taking. So it, it, from the people I interviewed and, and then other stuff it seems to be sort of late teens early 20s mid 20s maybe up to late 20s very very risk-taking and then 30s you're starting to drop off the given for that in the research i did was one people are starting to have kids and two by that stage a lot of their buddies have died so they're starting to drop off a little bit or they've had a terrible accident themselves so it drops off the kind of risk-taking or risk acceptance and then it appears actually to go back up again possibly um in people's kind of 50s so there's a there's a an interesting sort of wave if you like or or cycle and the other thing that we haven't spoken about which i really have to introduce just because it's such a quirky thing is luck um a lot of adventure athletes believe that they are still alive because of luck or think that other people died because they have been unlucky so I interviewed a very, very, very famous uh, steep skier. Um, and I asked him, you know, ab about that and why he felt he was still alive whilst most of the other people who he used to ski with are dead. And he said it was luck. He said that he had taken his good luck to be able to ski the routes that he skied and he, has, he had avoided bad luck. And luck is a fascinating subject in psychology, which I don't know an awful lot about. But there we go. A lot of these adventure athletes believe that they are still alive because they have been lucky. Hmm. Right. So, so what do you make of this for for an individual who's not an athlete and not particularly? you know, attracted to risk, but realizes that life within the comfort zone is kind of not what it could be. Um, what have mm. you, what have you learned about risk that you think is teachable? Okay. So the first thing I would say would be one of the really powerful things about doing adventures away from the everyday drudgery. So in a way, someone going off and climbing Everest they're getting away from the drudgery big time although there is actually probably quite a lot of drudgery involved in climbing Everest but but equally you could just go camping overnight go on a sort of a micro adventure just to get you out of your daily grind that would be one really easy thing to do and then if you're going to take that down to an even lighter level just change your commute to work 
go a different way. Because a lot of the things that we do, that we do daily, we just repeat the same behavior over and over again because that's easy for our brain and we don't have to think about it. But if you just sort of introduce variations like going camping overnight or walking a different way to work or choosing to go for a walk at lunchtime as opposed to eating a sandwich by your desk, anything that gets you out of your routine, basically, that would be my number one thing. And then other things would be just doing stuff and just saying yes to people offering you stuff as opposed to saying, no, I can't because of the kids or because of my toe or because I need a cup of tea or because I need to wash my hair. So just saying yes to unusual offers that you would normally say no to, just start saying yes to stuff. Because again, it brings you out of your sort of daily grind, but, but also... It brings you new experiences, okay? And then the more you say yes to quirky stuff or stuff you normally say no to, the more you start realizing that saying yes to stuff can, can bring new experiences. Because uh, a lot of what this is, is we're, we're talking about experiences that make you feel good at the time, but also you carry through with you later. So, so that would be the second thing um, I would suggest. And then the third thing that I would suggest is um, a really attitude to fear. So I think really we can sort of look at fear in two different ways or, or anxiety to a certain extent. But particularly when you're experiencing that fear, I think really fear does two things for us. There's fear is information. So if you're standing on top of a cliff and you're peering over and you, your, your stomach starts churning, obviously it does because you're getting information don't take another step. You're going to fall off and die. But quite often we have fear, which is just interference. The little inner critting in our head saying, don't do that, don't do that. You won't be able to do that because... So if you can just get a handle on when you feel fear, is it fear as information, which is very, very helpful? Or is it fear of, as, which is interference, which broadly speaking isn't? So start to kind of look objectively at your emotions of fear and then actually decide what you're going to do with them. So there's that kind of trite phrase, isn't there? Feel the fear and do it anyway. But actually, it's sort of true. You can be experiencing fear and, and still do stuff. And then that is going to change your relationship with fear. And fear is going to have less of a hold on you. Fear is going to become less sticky. Quite a lot of the time, stuff I ski... I, I look down and I, I look down on it and I'll and I'll be feeling fearful and then I'll just think, No, it'll be all right. I think I'm I'm you know, I think it'll be all right on a ski and it's all right. That's one other thing about athletes by the way. Whenever they talk about things going wrong, they never blame themselves. <laughs> who sorry, that was who? Who was it? Is it? One other thing I just wanted to say about adventure athletes. Oh, Whenever yeah. they talk about accidents or something going wrong, they never fall. It's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe you need that big ego to do big yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, of course, not accusing you, but those people do take responsibility. No, but that's the self-efficacy, right? I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. So so, so we talked a lot about um, physical courage and, and dealing with physical risk, but how do you feel that this all translates to moral courage um or to you know vital courage the vital courage means just for our listeners to gracefully face cancer for example or something like that like how do you feel that this the courage that you learn that you researched in does relate to other kinds of courage hmm that's a really great question um because the people i interviewed wouldn't consider themselves to be courageous they would just consider themselves to be making the best of life that they can. So making decisions whenever they go out to do their sport to get the sort of maximum utility, the maximum benefit from it. That's really what they're about. It's pretty selfish in that way because they know that they're going to get a great feeling or a great experience out of, out of it at the time just afterwards and that can last for weeks so in that way it is very very selfish so i suppose the i suppose i would how it would really translate would be 
think of yourself, not not necessarily other people all the time. Think about, you know, put yourself in the equation as well as other people. That's that's the number one thing. I mean, that's a thing that a lot of parents, particularly, you know, you're thinking about your little kids all the time and they obviously are very dependent on you, but you, you still need to be you. You still need to retain this notion of who you are, who you want to be. And I mean, that's quite kind of profound, isn't it? What your identity is, what your meaning is, how you create meaning in the world. So I would really think about it in terms of how am I creating meaning in the world in which I'm existing right now? Because meaning creation changes through life. So so what used to give us meaning or how we used to create meaning yesterday or last month or two years ago might well be different. So I would kind of de- I would de- develop an agility towards what's meaningful for me now. So if someone's ill or um, incapacitated in some way, I mean, to be honest, that's why I ended up doing the MAP course, because prior to that, I was essentially a professional adventurer. I had a one-year-old and I was pregnant with my second child. And I just thought, OK, I'm not actually going to be able to go on any any expeditions, so I need to create my meaning in another way. And that was doing the map course. So pragmatic and yet deep sort of work in terms of that option's not available to me at the moment because of these particular reasons. What other options are available and open to me? And sort of recreating your sense of self, if you like. Um, And also just not not denying yourself, not saying, no, I can't do that. Um, I think it's quite easy for us to do that. As we get older, we get more exhausted, you know, all that kind of stuff. But kind of thinking, yeah, actually, I'm going to give it a go. You know, I, maybe maybe I could do that. I've got this going on and maybe I can do this as well sort of thing. So does that answer your question? Um, it answers other questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was more thinking uh, along the lines of, but obviously it was interesting. And also before um, we get back to what I was thinking about, it reminded me of when we came back to the second year. And I think the first sentence out of your mouth is like, oh my God, I nearly jumped out of the window. Thank God this course is starting again. And I just had to laugh so much because, you know, usually mothers, they're like, yeah, I have my meaning at home and it's and it's small and it's pooping all day long and that fulfills me. And you're like, no, it doesn't. I'm, I'm my own person. Like, I love my kids, but I need to do my own stuff. I need to still go on my adventures. And I mean, your kids are still really small with three and five, but you're nevertheless going. And that's something that I think wouldn't even occur to a lot of people, you know, and and, and that's what I loved about meeting you in person. And that's kind of the difference between, you know, reading about those people um, who are, you know, you're like, oh, that's just, you know, one in a million or something. And then meeting someone, you're like, no, actually, that's a decision that you made. And that you something about yourself where you're like, yeah, I'm a mom, but I'm also other things. And I, I love that. And I remember that for <laughs> <laughs> Um I was more thinking along the lines of, you know, moral courage as to um, you talked about the risk mindset, right? Um, how they do risk management and stuff like that how that would translate into, let's say, the moral courage. Um, let's go political, right? Um, people, some people not that happy. What is happening now? And who's, you know, in England, in in America? And some people feel like, well, I have to do something, right? So it needs a little bit of courage to, for example, choose to become an activist or something. So do you yeah. feel like the stuff that you found about risk is helpful for someone taking completely different risks? Yes, uh, yes, uh, indeed. Um, and interestingly, I've just started becoming active in a very minor political arena myself as well, kind of on, on the back of Brexit al. Um, so, yes. And the thing is, it it bold. There you go. That's the word, really, I, that I, I want to say, be bold. Just take bold decisions, take bold actions and do bold behaviours. So, I, I mean, I'm, I, I do coach people and I'm going to give a plug for coaching, but I Please. actually, I, but I actually just got myself a coach 
Um, and I said, look, I, I'm not I'm not happy. I'm not volunteering in any um, I, I'm not happy sort of because I wasn't volunteering in any way. So I wasn't giving any of my time in any kind of voluntary capacity. I said, I'm not happy about it. And I'm really a bit down in the dumps about our kind of social situation and political situation. And so the coach coached me through it. It only took one session, actually. And then I understood immediately what I had to do. And that was go and volunteer at my local Green Party, which is what I'm now doing. So um, getting a coach is brilliant because it's just a very quick, it's a quick fix. It's pragmatic. They ask the right questions um, and uncover what is going to be the go-to thing for you. Um, And um, follow through. It's about following through. So it's about being bold and it's about following through because you do kind of feel satisfied and you do get those feelings of achievement after you've done the bold bit and you've followed through you know it's all very well having epiphanies right having an epiphany is great but it's the hard work that comes after an epiphany and that's what adventure athletes are really really good at doing they do the follow-up to the brilliant idea so 12 however many years ago it was 10 11 12 years ago i can't remember when i was walking down a mountain and i and i just thought to myself "Mm, walking down mountains is a bit crap on crampons Uh, and you quite it's quite trippy ovary most people die um when they're coming down mountains anyway where are my skis why aren't i skiing down mountains that was my epiphany and then it was hard work you know i had to earn money Um, to pay for the expeditions. I had to up my mountaineering skills because they were quite poor at the time. And it was kind of four years or five years until I started doing some really big stuff. So having an epiphany or or understanding what, what is going on in your head or why you're feeling down about something, that's one thing. And then deciding what to do about it and finding your path and doing it. So have the epiphany or have the realization and then do the work after. I think it's a two part process basically. And it's about being bold and undeterred. My goodness me, if I had a pound or a Euro for every single time someone said to me, you can't do that. You can't ski that. You can't ski that now that you're a mother. La 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 la. I would be a millionaire, which I'm not. So, Follow your conviction, you know, have the conviction, have the have the kind of epiphany, do the hard work and do not be deterred by other people. Because I don't think Donald Trump has been deterred by people. That is really. a good point. Yeah. I wanted so, to talk to you. Sorry, did you? No, go on. Uh, yeah. I wanted to talk to you about very much exactly where we're at now. We're talking about um, perseverance and Perseverance, again, there is this, this I, I don't know, I would say it exists on a spectrum, right? So part of perseverance mm. is that when it gets hard that you don't stop. But another part, and that's very important for athletes, but also for other people, is kind of the, 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 the rest and restorative part of it. And um, in terms of emotion, maybe also the self-compassionate part of it, you know? So I'm yeah. really interested in in what you think about that because obviously if we're like oh we're you know the kind thing to yourself might be to give up and and how do you how do you navigate that because that's something I'm super curious about okay that's a really great question um so we are talking about perseverance grit really by the way have you read that brilliant book grit by Angela Duckworth no I haven't listeners your next book is grit by Angela Duckworth it's an absolutely brilliant book and essentially, what it, it's talking about how to be very good at something, okay? So she comes out with this really, really neat um, formula, basically. And that is natural talent, whatever that is. I don't know what that is, but anyway. Talent plus deliberate practice of the sort of Ericsson 10,000 hours type of practice. That's really what she's talking about. That gives you ability. So what you have innately, whatever that is, plus deliberate practice, that's hard, challenging practice. That's not like, oh yeah, I'm doing a bit of practice today. That's hard, challenging practice. That gives you ability. And then once you've got ability plus deliberate practice again, that's your outcome. And to go through that, though, that theory, it takes grit again and again and again and again and again. Gritty, grit to keep up with the deliberate, challenging practice. So 
for sure, perseverance is very important. If you've got kids, by the way, what she says in her book is what you, in order to develop grit in your kids, which is a very, very useful thing to have, um, get them to choose one hard activity to do for a year and they can't give up within the year. And then once the year is over, they can re-choose. So if they want to give that one up and start another one, that's great. And the whole family has to do it parents everybody so everyone is doing one hard thing one challenging thing it's a great book i really recommend it um so giving up that's a great question okay so the the, the first thing that i would say in terms of rest and recovery is there is literally one incredibly simple answer and that is meditation so apologies to anyone who doesn't believe in the efficacy of meditation but there we go that's it meditate um meditation is so great at buffering against so much of the difficulty and the challenges that we have in life but it, in this way why is meditation so great it's because it really gives your brain space to breathe and your body space to breathe but it, it's it's like a, a, encouraging a, a kind of a blank time or a gap of no mind in your head so I think meditation is very very important um, if you're very physically active or if you're very mentally active you know anyone who's got any kind of mentally very challenging jobs really we all need to meditate a little bit each day in order to keep that going and if you don't want to meditate then just lie down in a room in silence and just be you know, you don't necessarily have to listen to a guided meditation or a mindfulness meditation, but just just a space where there's no other information coming into your head. There's no other sounds. There's, um, you know, no, no other kind of sights. Your smartphone switched off. So I think that would be the, the number one thing, would be this kind of gap of no mind create either through meditation or just having 15, 20 minutes um, silent time. Um, first thing and the second thing is um the other thing about meditation is because we attempt to meditate and have this empty mind but it doesn't work and our brain goes crazy and our thoughts go all over the place um what what you end up doing is you you end up kind of getting into quite deep self-reflection so if you meditate for a long time that's when you start having these really brilliant ideas these epiphanies um but how, in a short sorry, amount just of time how long how long is a long time what are we talking well, about? Well, I think it's because over I don't half trust... an hour. All oh, right, okay. I was just wondering, because this is a woman who's ran through the Sahara for seven days, so I just wanted to check, really. Oh, no. <laughs> what I'm are you talking about? you meditate for seven days. Well, no, that's <laughs> well, who brilliant, knows? isn't you it, know, that's... going for those Vipassana meditations. I, I think quite a long time is half an hour. For okay. me, I'm normally right. more 10, 20 minutes. Okay. And no, I don't meditate every day because I don't create the time. But if I did, I think it would be very, very good for me and for everybody else. Um, so, um, you know, you start having those train of thoughts and then you just this ability to drop into yourself. So the, the better you get to, to know yourself and know your body and know what your brain is doing, I think the better you're able to make decisions because sometimes you do just have to stop, right? And just think, actually, that goal I had, that's just not the right goal anymore. It's not... You know, so I nearly did a PhD starting, for example, um, this Octo October just gone. And then I just I just realized I just didn't have time. Mm -hmm. um, and you really I really wanted to do it because I love risk and it was just going to be amazing. And I just thought I actually it's just not now. It might be never, but it's. But it, it's not now. So. Any of those funny little keystone habits that you can have, you know, people do it when they're having a shower, don't they? Or cleaning their teeth. Just have a little check, check, check out, drop in on yourself. How am I? How, how's my body feeling? Is anything aching? How's my head? Is it busy? Have I been a bit fizzy today? A bit jittery? Or is it all right? How tired am I? You know, do I look exhausted? Do I feel exhausted? Do I think exhausted? Um... I, 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 I must admit, I tend to do mine in the shower. I have a really lovely um, shower cream thing. It's made with frankincense. I quite understand why the wise men gave it to baby Jesus. It's the most incredible smell. So for me, do you know what I mean? So that smell, for me, when I smell that frankincense smell, that's a trigger for me to drop in on myself. So I don't have to think, 
oh, I'm going to have a shower now and get the cream and I'm this. I, I don't need to think about it. I just know it's associated with the smell for me now. Similar hand cream. Whenever I put on any old hand cream, that's when I do a little drop in on myself. Weirdly, I sometimes do it when I'm getting my wallet out of my bag or my pocket to pay for something. I have a little drop in on myself. The shopkeepers look very perplexed. But whatever it is, create a little habit around that. Um, just, it just increases your self-awareness. And then that mitigates against rumination, you know, the inner critic just banging on that little voice in your head. But also you'll start to realise if something that you think you want to do is actually the wrong thing. So, yeah. And then at the end of the day, so if I'm, on a, if I'm skiing on a really high mountain or doing something and I'm absolutely exhausted, you know, running an ultra marathon or whatever, then I just have one simple question that I ask myself because I can't, I haven't got the energy to think of anything else. And that question is, can I take another step? So when, when everything else is gone, when there's no energy for anything else, you just, you just ask yourself one single question. And mine is, can I take another step? So I'm going to try that at some point. I'm going to try that. Interesting. Is there anything yeah. about risk that we haven't covered yet that you think is really cool and interesting and worth sharing? Um, I don't think there is particularly. It's it's generally very very understudied, and as I as I said at the start at the start, the studies that have been around have been either kind of lab studies, um, or interviews so it, i think it would be great to get more risk studies more kind of in situ the, the 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 big problem with one of the big problems with um risk research is that it's difficult to interview people who have taken a risk and it's gone wrong because you can't interview dead people but um so th th i mean i i jest a bit but however you have to have this awareness that if you take a risk and you die, then you can't get the information from that person as to whether they would have chosen actually on balance not to have taken that risk. So that's, you know, that's one thing. Well, and um, the ethical stuff, right? I mean, there's a lot of things yeah. which would be really interesting. Like how would people behave if you forced them to, I don't know, climb a mountain or something, but obviously yeah. you can't never do that. No, exactly. I had to jump through quite a lot of ethical and sort of health and safety hoops even to do the research that I did for the masters it wasn't it wasn't straightforward doing the ethics and um and all of that it was it was pretty it was quite tricky so so that's another kind of big question but in terms of you know we've talked I mean just getting back to the death thing with adventure athletes in particular, I, I kind of, in the research, I, I realized that there's this notion of positive fatalism. So this kind of one, one of the, one of the people quoted, if I die skiing, it's a good death. And then someone else sort of said, well, I don't want to die. That would be really annoying, but you can die anywhere. Do you know what I mean? There's this sort of notion of, um, I've, I've lived my life to the full. So, It, it's not going to be completely surprising to me if I die skiing tomorrow type thing or doing whatever they're doing. Um, I actually think this research around death attitudes, terror management theory, meaning management, meaning management theory, all of that. I think that I think there could be that I think it's an interesting area and I think there could be more research in that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, And then, as I said, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of cognitive, there's a lot of this cognitive stuff which which is going on, which which I've touched on. But um, in 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 general, for your listeners, um, I would really say, see what it see what experience you get from doing something which you perceive to be slightly risky, or other people perceive for you to be slightly risky. And, and do it and see what your what the outcome is for you. I do think we're still, as, as this sociologist said, I do think we're still quite encouraged to be fairly risk averse, you know, and 
And I think by sort of not necessarily seeking risk, but by accepting a bit more risk, we can gain things psychologically that we wouldn't be able to without it. I I actually do think that. And I think that's across the board. I don't think that's just for the 10% of us or of people who appear to have this sort of magic genetic combination. I oh, think that's probably absolutely. everybody. I, I, can, I can testify to that with two very different examples. One is when my dad taught me to drive. And um, he just, from the very beginning, he, he, for some reason, and I don't know why, because normally I would just be like, you know, if I don't want to do what my dad wants, wanted me to do, I'd just be like, you know, get lost and I'll be out. But for some reason, I tolerated the fact that he, he made these really demanding driving lessons when I was learning to drive. So, so he would like force me to go uh, to drive to a place for two or three hours. And I was really beginning driver when it was snowing and, and, and raining and, you, and there was a uh, fog and you could barely see anything. Or he would take me up um, like narrow ledges and God knows what all. And I mean, I'm not saying like I'm this rock star driver at all because I, I drive maybe once a year, if at all. But what it has done is that it has just made me a lastingly more relaxed driver. Even even though, I mean, most people who only drive once a year or less are, are the ones I know at least are pretty freaked out about it, you know? And he just did this. And now, I, I don't know, I just feel like a lasting sense of, yes, I need to train. I, I'm very aware of the fact that I don't drive that often, but I, I'm I'm more calm. And the other experience I had was um in uh in south africa when we had this ranger and he usually have to stay in the car you know with the safari and that kind of thing and he he told us to get out and at that moment i don't know what happened i think i can only explain it because i loved these animals since i was a really little kid and and i just always wanted to see them in the wild and i didn't really think about um what they could do in that moment and i got out of the car and i mean obviously there was a ranger around but after that, you're like, my boss is screaming at me? Really? Is that scarier <laughs> than like 10 lions 25 meters away? No, it's yeah. not. And, and yeah. it's just, that's also a cool thing that you take these some of these risks and then you put that into perspective and you're just like, or you, I don't know, you, you do something like whatever it is, like the big collection of stuff you did, but also the, the fairly smaller collection that I did, you can think back and just like, um, yeah, I I. I managed to do like this 30 times as long, so I should be fine. There you go. Yeah. So I would say that. And the, and the other thing I would say is really have a look at fear. Really remember fear is information and fear is interference and see if, if you can kind of discern which one that is. And then with that information, what are you going to do with that information? Because just because you feel fear about something, it doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't do it. Very um, good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so I, I think those would be my, I think those would be my two things. Yeah. Um, and I mean, on a broad note, on, on a very broad note, our bodies are capable of doing way, way more than we think that they are. You know, they're pretty resilient. So, so that's on a broader note, but uh, yeah, I, you know, and it's good to leave yourself behind. That, that's the thing about this transcendence point or this feeling of sublime or this flow is get beyond your own ego, get beyond yourself to a, a, a different place. It, it's great to leave everything behind. It's cathartic. It's escape. Um, that's the, this is why I was saying, you know, just go camping overnight or take a different route to work. Just do something a bit different, which is a bit cathartic and a, and, and a bit of an escape. And, you know, because it, it's, it's actually restful. It, it sounds really weird because cognitively there's a lot going on, but it's restful to get beyond your own ego and beyond your own self. And, and that's where you get when you take a big, big risk because, because it's so all-encompassing. You can't be thinking about yourself anymore. You're thinking about something more than yourself. So this kind of notion of getting beyond yourself it, it, you get you it's almost like you're giving yourself a rest it, it sounds weird but but there we go that's the thing thank you so much Susie it was uh, delightful to talk to you oh. about this and um, yeah thanks so much 
Oh, it's lovely to chat, and I hope that people find it interesting. Oh, I, th- I think they will. I think they will. Good. <laughs> okay, see you. <laughs> see you, bye. Bye. Did you recognize that sound? Thank God we updated the internet. But what if I told you that some of your beliefs haven't changed since the good old bleeping days? I know all the excuses. Old brain patterns die hard. But together, we can spot, disrupt, and rebuild your wiring. Let 2017 be the year in which you cut the red wire and the good guys win. Brainwash yourself good. Gum.co slash brainwash. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.